0: Hi, it's a Tuesday evening, and uh, let me see if I can also do the, hafta, the uh, I'm sorry, the Pashate, which is Parshas Toldos, um, which is being sponsored from Eretz Yisrael by Deborah Benjamin Radomsky, uh, and my good friends who I've never met, uh, in the Gush. And this is for the grandfather, memory of the grandfather, Alexander Mordechai Benar Yehuda, again, who's fourth or fifth, Yartzee, whatever it is, is tomorrow. So, uh, once again, we have a yard sale, as I did earlier this morning, for somebody's yard sale, is the last day of the month, the last day of Mark Heshvan. <coughs> okay. Uh, I do hope we'll be able somehow or other to encounter them when I'm in Israel in January, but I don't know. I have a tight schedule. I don't, I don't know if we'll be in the Gush or not. Um, but thank you very much, in the Shem Shem Now, uh... How do we do something about partial told us? Everybody knows the story about how Yaakov steals the bracha from Esau or, or gets it properly, you know, depending how firm you want to be in judging this. I want to go somewhere with this. Before I do, I want to speak in a general terms, and that is, uh, one way or another, obviously, if we're told this story about the stealing of the birthright and the misrepresentation, that you know, how Kol, Yaakov, Daim, Esau, and so forth, So it seems to be, and they were twins, and they were born twins at the beginning of the Pasha, as we know, and by Yisroch suit, they're already fighting inside the belly, etc., etc. Everybody listening to this podcast knows all these stories, these Chazals. So, uh, however the story turned out, obviously it was meant to be that uh, the two brothers would have a certain enmity and be alienated from each other, which is interesting. Doesn't have to be that way. Two brothers, especially twins, could uh, cooperate. Uh, For whatever reason, in other words, divine providence seems to so organize itself in this partition afterwards, down till today, uh, at least in rabbinic thought, that the two brothers were not meant to, to get together, but on the contrary by framing the whole situation of a, over a, a stolen birthright or something along those lines, it meant that from the dawn of history, they're going to be lo yachlul yachtov. Can't be together. Mind you, Yaakov can prosper when he's on his own, and so can Esau, and that's what happens in this week and next week's Parsha, as we know. You know, when you get the Vayetzi and so forth. <clears throat> and Vayishlach. But together they can't cooperate, which is just interesting. It's a little bit like Abraham and Lot. You know, Avram can prosper, Lot can prosper, not together. Uh that's an interesting phenomenon because you look around, and some people are like that. Some families, the siblings and the others are able to cooperate. Several brothers together can cooperate to run a business. I know people like that, and so do you. And families can cooperate. And Adraba, sometimes you see families that when they get married, they talk to live in the same block if they can and things like that. And they visit each other and so forth. That's nice. On the other hand, we also know plenty of families where the opposite is the case. In Vasmil, you have two brothers or two sisters. Oh boy, I know cases like that. Uh, they can get along as long as she's in Lakewood and the other one's in, in Cleveland. You know what I mean? As long as one is in St. Louis and the other one's in Toronto. If they're both in the same place, not good. Uh, so the bunch of them runs the world in funny ways. Sometimes you have these families that you see were meant to be together and, and fit together very nicely and therefore form a grand unit where one helps the other. And sometimes it's the opposite. If they're together, it will be counterproductive. If they're far apart, they can be friends. I see you, you know, at a uh, you know, I send you an email or Rosh Hashanah, you know, that kind of thing. If there'd be anything more than that, not good. The good Lord said to organize the world, that Yaakov and Asaph should be like the second, that they can't get along with each other. As long as Asaph lives in Canada and Yaakov lives in America, as long as Asaph is in London and Yaakov is in Paris, all right. If they're both in London, both in Paris, not good. I know this particular way it developed, but I'm saying that's the purport of it. And when we are told these stories in the Chumash, they're not stama, uh, as a soap opera, but it's supposed to be some grand message. They happen to individuals. In other words, the stories did happen. But the the significance is beyond just the story that happened. These are meta-historical stories. Now, that's how we look at the Torah. And as we look meta-historically, when you look down the sweep of human history, you'll know that for whatever reason, it came into the head of the, uh, the Chazal and afterwards, that Aesop seems to be identical with the Christians, with the West, and Yishmael with the East, with the Muslims. And indeed, Jewish history um, has played out with the Christians and the Muslims. Jewish history has not played out the last thousands of years in uh, Singapore and in uh, you know the Far East and in India and such places. Uh, not really. I mean, they're a small group, but not, not really. The center of Yiddishkeit has always been either with Esau or with Yaakov, which is just interesting when you think about it in a grand sweep of a metahistorical perspective. For whatever reason, you know, you can see the hand of Hashem in the broad sweep of history. We may not exactly know 100% why, but I'll tell you again, looking back, the Kalal Yisrael has lived in the last 2,000 years, either by either by Yishmael or by Esau. That's how it goes. So when we read the, the Parshas, of uh, you know, told us, and by Esau, and so on and so forth, uh, you know, we're not just reading a story, interesting as it is, of siblings long ago, but we're saying this has something to do with us today. And so what you see is that, in certain sense, there's a kinship between Yaakov and Esau, between the Jews and the Christians, and the kinship, of course, has expressed itself in history through the Christian religion which is a combination of the Old Testament and the New. Uh, it's just quite remarkable that uh, the Christian civilization as it's unfolded, which certainly had its anti-Jewish stuff, no question about it, nevertheless took the Jewish narrative and spread it around the world. Because the Christians are macabre of the Old Testament. And so they believe in Abram and Yaakov and so forth. They believe, by the way, story of Yaakov and Esau, you know, in whatever way they interpret it. And uh, that's how you go to Cucamonga and people have heard about these stories. Other religions don't have that. But the Christian Muslims, that spread everywhere. In vast places. Now, I, you're ignoring the zillions in Asia which have other religions. It's true, you got a point there. But nevertheless, the Christian and the Muslim religions took it around the world. And I read not long ago, the fastest growing religion at the moment is the Pentecostalist. Um, Protestants, which are, if what I read was true, they're getting 35 million new uh, converts a year. I'll say it again, 35 million around the world in all the different continents. This is Esau, as we understand it through the lenses of rabbinical thought. It's Esau. Esau is doing okay. Um, what about Yaakov? Yaakov has done, you know, okay in the sense that Yaakov is still around. Uh Yaakov is been messed over for certain reasons that will come later on when you see Joseph and the brothers. So Yaakov is in, still in exile. But Yaakov has managed to maintain at least his basic identity and it still has a Yoshiv Olim. But if Yaakov and Esau get together and live in proximity, though there's an intimate fraternity, then what happens is, as we've seen in history, not so much that Yaakov influences Esau, but the other way around. You look in America. You look around the world, and most of the time, the Yaakov and Esav will live together, especially in the last hundred, two hundred years. I mean, literally lived together, not lived as our ancestors did, in a all from community, you know, like in a ghetto or 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 the equivalent thereof, uh, in in physical proximity, but not actual proximity to Esav. But if they actually live together with Esav, usually what happens is. The of rubs off on the Yaakov, and not Yaakov uh, rubs off on the Esav. Doesn't only mean those two brothers, but it means, as I would interpret it, the grand sweep of history, which is why, to the degree that uh, Yiddishka is able to flourish today, it does so in sort of like voluntary ghettos. You know, whether in Baltimore, Muncie, uh, you know, Lakewood, uh, whatever you whatever you, you want to say. You understand? Uh, now, of is bigger and quicker. Yaakov walks slower, but Yaakov at least maintains his identity. If somehow or other you could get a true combination of Yaakov and Esau, it would sweep the world. That's what I think. But Hashem doesn't want that. Because as I say, it might sweep the world, but the result would be the disappearance of Yaakov into Esau. And so, therefore, the good Lord created in history that there's a certain sinner And whenever Yaakov and Aesov dwell together, sooner or later, whether it's the fault of Yaakov or the fault of Aesov, enmity occurs and bad stuff happens, and then Yaakov has to like withdraw. Okay? Yaakov has to withdraw. This certainly happened the last hundred years without question. And today, as we know, plenty of people live closely with Aesov and encounter Aesov all the time. And the truth of the matter is, most people are marrying into not the other way around. So, it's just very interesting when well, you see that Hashkacha so arranged it that there should be a father, it should be twins. The twins should not get along, they should fight over the Chorah. And one reason or another, Yaakov disguised himself and stole the birthright. Therefore, that instantly made it that the other brother can't stand the sight of him and wanted to kill him for many, many years until the brother realized, you know, I made a billion you of my own, I don't need it. This mamish would happen. With early christianity and judaism in the very early period the christians could not imagine uh survive you know growing and living and surviving as a religion if judaism still remains alive because people used to say why do you believe me the jews knew him and they said no but as time went on as you and i know Aesop did very well the christian religion flourished humongously all around the world and it turns out that the fact that the jews didn't acknowledge Christianity didn't hurt them one bit. Once it didn't hurt them one bit, Ahi, yichi You know, i keep your stuff. I'm okay. Yeshli I'm okay. Right? Christian religion does not suffer, you know, from the fact that the Judaism is not subscribed to it. They're doing that's fine. So you see that I say, myself is bottom in self, a grand sweep in this parsha. The specifics of it have to do with the brachas and the stealing and all the rest of it. But the the sum total of it is that you know, as we know, Yaakov by the end of the Pasha has to hit the road. So Yaakov doesn't want to be destroyed by Esau; he's got to run. And again, if Yaakov throughout history doesn't want to be destroyed by Esau, not even violently, but through um, intermarriage and things like that, then uh, or cultural uh, you know influence, then Yaakov has to run away. Um, when Yaakov runs away, sometimes he ends up with love and gets screwed over there, but nevertheless, he has to run away. And by running away, Yaakov survives Esau. I mean, that's the story. By running away, Yaakov survives Esau. So it's just, you know, very interesting, you know, the meta-historical grand sweep over here. Now, in the specifics of it, as we all know, all the mafarshim throughout the ages have tried to come up. Nobody's a good shot, as far as I'm concerned. In other words, somebody says, ah, that's great. All you can see over is the Mobim learns this way, Rashi learns that way, you know. So of course we give tribute to these great people. But it's not like, ah, this is a Gvaldib shot. You know, everything fits in. Because still, what Yaakov deceived his father. And I know the mother said, Allah kill us, and all that. We know the story. But you know, why did the father Khap? Uh why did the father realize he has two kids? One is bad news and the other one's a like, for me. So you should go and Give the bracha to Yaakov, Ishtam Yosheh Olim. Why Why did Yitzhak see that? So like I say, whatever explanation you want to give, is no good one as far as I'm concerned. Now I could be wrong, I'm only telling you what appears to me, like I say a thousand times. I'm not the last word on the subject, I'm just sharing, you know, the way it hits me. Uh, Why Taka was it that, uh, that, that Yitzhak favored, you know, Esau? Um, (coughs) the Abarbanel, in my opinion, is very, very interesting in the subject, very thoughtful, uh, but pretty outspoken. Uh, And if you look at the Abarbanel, you know, in his style, he raises a hundred questions and tries to answer them and so forth. And the interesting part has to do with his reading, close reading of the text in today's Parsha and the juxtapositions. Because, as we know, the first part is about Yitzhak and his adventures and misadventures with the Abimelech team, you know, with the Palestinians, with the people of Gerar and all the rest of it. And they're fighting over the wells and the water. And much like the Arabs did, you know, in the Gaza Strip back in 2005 or six, whenever it was, they stopped up the wells and so forth. Okay. But by the time the story's all over, after all the quarreling and back and forth, the Torah goes to the trouble of telling us the story that and Pichol Sartzvo and all all the VIPs from Gora, come and they say to Yitzchak, Mom, is a very Middle Eastern manner, which is, um, let's make a treaty. Yitzchak said, You don't like me, so why are you coming to visit me? You know, why, why, why do you have anything to do with you? And they are pretty frank. They say it's true. We don't like you. In fact, we hate the hell out of you. You're bad news. But what can we do? We saw that God is on your side. Therefore, we got to kiss up to you. So, in other words, we hate you. If it was in our power, we'd kill you. But we see, for whatever reason, that the great power out there, Elohim, right? The great power out there likes you. And therefore, we got to acknowledge that. Consequently, we want to make a defense treaty to protect ourselves, not to protect you, okay? And they say, let's make a non-aggression treaty. Aye, they were aggressing against him. Yes, but they say, now we see that we can't beat you. So if we can't beat you, let's make a peace, because we'll get something out of it. A little bit like these Abraham Accord stuff and all the rest of it, in which none of these Arab countries are saying we love Israel. Why would they? And none of them are saying, we, we, if we could, we, 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 we would not wipe you out. Of course they would. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't they? But since we see we can't, so let's make a deal. So maybe we can make some money on the, on the prospect also. And all the countries, Egypt, Jordan, have made uh, treaties with Israel. is on this basis that, you know, if tomorrow we see Elohim is not with you, and we can defeat you and wipe you out, we will. Now that we are frank about this, let's be friends. And they do make a treaty, as we all know. Um, and what happens right after that? Okay, uh, let me get a parsha. What happens right after they make this treaty? Uh, one second. There you go. Because you know it's this this smichus. So they signed a peace treaty and they had a party and everything was fine. Okay. Uh, but he right afterwards, this by he says Yehuda's That uh Yehuda married these two women when Yehuda was forty years old. So it sounds like he what he you call uh, he wasn't he didn't get married till he was forty. Rashi Taka says that. He was fooling around till he was forty, right? And uh and all of a sudden now he decides to settle down, as it were. Okay, let it be. Now um so, I'll say it again. Uh, I mean, Esau, I mean, what do you call it? Yitzhak knew this. None of his kids were married. Yaakov wasn't married, but he was sitting and learning. Asa uh, wasn't married. He was not sitting and learning. So, if you're not married, you're not sitting and learning. What's going on? Well, I'll leave that to your imagination. Or maybe not. So, uh, that's who ASA was. And then he married these two women, these two shikzes, uh Chiti, Right, one was Bas Beeriah and another one was Bas Eilan and their names were Yehudas and Basmas. So it's always been funny to me because Judy and Judas is a well-known Jewish name, but if you ask who was the first Judas, who was the Yehudas? You know, the Yehudis is the wife of Esau. Now, Batiana, um, let's put it this way: this is not the week to have a vort in which the Kala's the name is Yehudis. Let's put it, <laughs> let's put it that way. Batiana Moritz Ruchli Rivka. And they drove Yitzhak and Rivka crazy. Okay, notice they were disrespectful to them, and so on and so forth. You know that that, that that's what it was. Their bad behavior. So uh, and the redoxes just to annoy them, and so on and so forth. Now, why is that told right after the story, right? Why is that told right after the story that um, you know the the that the the Palestinians made a, a peace? With Yitzchak. Their Barbanel is very interesting. He says to, say, to show you what a shmo uh, Asa was and the wives. Uh, that it juxtaposed the story of the peace with Avimelch on the one hand, the treaty, and then the marriage of Esau with the two bad women. Tell you how bad off Esau and his wives were. You see all the big Gaisha leaders, uh, Avimelech and Pichol and all this came, to honor Yitzchak, out of a, a, a year of him. And they didn't want to get him angry. Right? In other words, they moved heaven and earth to sign a treaty to avoid the anger of Isaac. But these two shikses didn't give a darn. Hani and Sheh Esau, Hiliosomnosachit Hayamaris Rucht. There were Canaanite shikes, therefore there are Mos Ruch, meaning call echaman, Hayamaris Ruch, the Yitzigol Rifka, for the Hoy Bite, Ms. Baishows meadow, love rifki and chigro So they had no respect and no fear of this. So like we say today, you know, Rifka said, Listen, I made the kitchen kosher. Here is the milk, here's the flake he's the pyrof. And she goes and says, heck with it. I'll use the power of you know. i will use the could like thing for the flagship pot. and the mother-in-law is there. It's in the mother-in-law's kitchen. Shows I don't. I don't hold from you. You understand? Uh, so the others were afraid, and they weren't. And, and the husband Esau never said, "Hey, don't disrespect my mother." So think about what I'm saying. Esau lived, you know, the same tent uh, city with Yitzhak and Rivka, right? because um, that's how they all lived. And let's put it this way. So Esau married these two women, let it be. But at least they should show a certain basic respect for the for the father-in-law and the mother-in-law, for his parents. First of all, they're his parents. Second of all, they're great people. They're rich and powerful and didn't care. And Esau and didn't... Let me put it this way. The wife would not do it if the husband didn't acquiesce. That's the point of the barbarian. Now, and he's right. Okay now the, the interesting thing is like this in spite of all this Yitzchak liked Esau right? Notice it didn't stare Yitzhak from continuing to favor Esau now maybe the reason is because as I said before a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law that's already bad news so, but think about what I'm about to say. The daughter-in-law usually doesn't go against the father-in-law, right? Usually goes against the mother-in-law. Isn't that the truth? If you see a bad relationship over there, usually the daughter-in-law when it's a bad situation, the daughter-in-law is going to go and contradict her husband's mother, not the father. And uh, so so let's put it this way. That alienated Rifka big time. a se cielo is my shoes of commercial and Darbano says, I want to suggest, meaning he said it could be that this is what ticked off Rivka to go pull the the stick where she said to Yaakov, go fake it out, and I'll 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 make it happen. I'll get the uh ease and I'll uh she's the one who pushed Yaakov to go and pretend to be Asim, as we all know very well this story. Okay? Now, how could it be like that? So he says, Debarbano, uh Ain't my So I'm skipping a little bit to get to the to a part I want to emphasize. Ain't Suffolk Yitzhak my say. So should have, it was incumbent upon him as the head of the family, not simply to let his kids marry whoever they want, but to see how they're running a household. For example, I'll just give you an example. Imagine today somebody, a firm person, his kids get married. Okay, I mean, it's a fine line between interfering and sticking your nose and telling the kids what to do. But it's also a fine line to see, are they going off the derrick or not? I mean, and also put it this way, are they maintaining a basic Yiddish level? Uh, but Yitzchak didn't do that. He should have paid closer attention to how Yitzchak conducts himself and his wives and their kids, and he should have noticed that any kids that are going to be born from Esav and Bosmas, or from Esav and uh, Yehudas, are going to be like the parents in a bad way, not in a good way. So he should have at least davened before he gave out the brachas and just called an Esav unilaterally and said, go hunt me an animal. I want to give you a bracha. He should have asked Hashem, which one should I give it to after all they were twins? Should I give it to Asa or should I give it to Yaakov? Should I give it God Bledazo or Godel Bleschlemuzo? Should I give it to the one who's a Bechor in terms of chronology or a Bechor in terms of Shlemuz? But the Barbanel says, I'm reading, this is not me talking, this is the Barbanel. But <clears throat> Ava Mekelkel sure Ava us sure means love can sometimes screw you up. It can make you Make make uh, you know folly, uh, foolish mistakes, and that's what happened to Yisroch. Well, Abba tells us the love, the affection he felt for Esav, made him have poor judgment, and he called on the wrong guy. Laavasa was Esav, choschkanavshkalbo, and since he liked Esav, so for some reason, Yaakov was attracted to Esav and was not attracted to Yaakov. I'm sorry, you know what I mean. Yisroch, the father, was attracted to Esav and not the same way. Which is a funny story, okay. Um, now I know because I'll say of kissed up to him and so forth. Maybe that's the case, you know. Th- that would be Malamart, could be, you know. What I'm saying? Could be, but then that means that Yitzhak allowed himself to be played. Because if it's true that of came in and said, You take Meister and salt, and there's all these other things that we learned since we're little kiddies, then um, then he didn't see he was being manipulated. Uh, this is a problem. Every parent has if you have several children or the children trying to play you, which I guess is always the case to some degree to some degree, um but you got to be aware of it, okay, and he didn't well I alsozo since he had this Shabo, he just liked him, um and he couldn't see anything wrong with him, but we like never he. So here, the Barbanel comes like a modern literary critic, you know, like a Robert Alter or something like that. And the Barbanel says, eno eno miros. His eyes were too dim to see. So the plain shot with that is he got blind to some degree or another. You can learn midrashically, get you it know, from the kid or whatever, but in other words, it's a vart in his, uh, uh, you know, cataracts. You know what I mean? Notice it was a physiological, visual thing that we couldn't see. So that Barbanel, no... It, that's not what it means exclusively it means his ability to see what was really happening around him was impaired you know what i just said his vision might have been okay or or not but whatever it was he couldn't see what was happening under his own nose uh she any siglo be that um uh, his eyes were too weak, meaning his seichel, any sichlo, the eyes of his seichel. His discernment was impaired to the point that when it came to Yisov, he just couldn't see that something was going wrong. Right? And he would and and he just didn't see, uh, and he wasn't misboning what was happening to Yisov. And therefore, it's a simple case where um, uh, being too affectionate I messed him up. Now, a parent should be affectionate but not to the point where he doesn't see the kids are taking fatal mistakes. If you're like, yes, if you're killing people, stealing people's wives, the wives are bringing a up, and all the rest of it, and he says everything's okay, uh, there's a problem. That his ability to bechina, his ability to discern what was going around him, was impaired. So this is assigning quite a push-up shot approach to the story which makes a great deal of sense it's a sad story, it has a great deal of sense why did uh, Yitzhak favor so because he did right, you know you can play pop psychologist and some do that, especially in the 20th century but, because that's all it's just pop psychology but it doesn't, whatever the case is Vatecheno uh, Miros and if we couldn't see which one really deserved to get the brucha and that's why Rivka made her move Okay? So it's as interesting as if there's a meta-historical reason, but then there's the very interesting parent-child psychological reason, which, which uh, you can see impairment. Now, it's just interesting to me because the uh, uh, contemporary of the Bar-Banel, or a little bit before him, was the Akeda Balakeda, and he goes to the trouble of saying only his eyes were impaired, but not his mind and faculty. In other words, the Akedah uh, rejects that shot because he wanted, or don't want to describe ascribe any kind of um, what's the right word Uh, uh, fault to the Avos but uh, it's not so poshant okay, it's not so poshant the Avos can also uh, mess up because there's no question um, no one will disagree what I'm about to say, that Rivka was right and Yitzchak was was wrong Rivka was right and Yitzchak was wrong now you can say a whole bunch of reasons you know, she knew a phony when she saw one because she grew up by love, I mean, it's all those words, which are true but the bottom line is, Yitzhuk was wrong and Rifko was right. That's a powerful statement I just made. Yitzhuk was wrong. How can one of the others be wrong? It could happen. You know, that. that's what the rabbinical is saying. It could happen. Now, the truth is, I was today reading, you know, my two minutes or three minutes of Musa, I happen to be going now through the Nebuchadnezzar time, just Stamazai, coincidentally, and uh, I was in chapter 21 of part one, uh, where he's talking a lot of Kabbalistic business, you know, those in Never Zachayim will not be surprised to hear that. And he goes on to make a remarkable statement, and that is in chapter 21, HaFalaf, where he, if I, the way I interpret it is as follows, <clears throat> it's fascinating. The Torah wasn't given until it was given. So, at the time of the obvious, the Torah wasn't given yet. Uh, without going through the crush drunk and populistic root the Torah wasn't given yet um but on the other hand you see obviously Yaka more or less kept the Torah, with some exceptions. so what's the shot um and were they supposed to we're not supposed to so the uh says something uh, quite remarkable and that and and I would compare it to what I've spoken about here before the and Torah Shavalpeh. meaning. Then in the history of the Torah pair, you will probably, if you've listened to it, what I say, you may recall this, the Torah Pair had went through two stages in its history. When it was uh, literally not on paper, and then when it switched, to becoming books, uh, which which was the B'deev. It. it was necessary, but it's the B'deev. It. Ever since then, we're in the world of books. So what I explained, so what's the idea of Torah Pair? Not that there's a taboo in writing it down, but as soon as you write it down, you sort of deprive the Talmud uh, Chacham, the Posek, from an infinite variety of uh, choices in pasquining a shaila unique to each particular situation. Because once you know you have you know such a din in the Gemara or something like that, you, you're not supposed to go against it uh, or violate it or omit it. But really, 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 you should be able to if you were a first-class posek, and you understood the Torah thoroughly and this particular case required such an approach. That's what you find in the Geras sure of are gone and in others from that I try to explain it that way. You know, that period in the history of the Torah of Baalpeh when it really was Balpah, and then, when, in other words, there were no texts to bind anybody and then later on when it switched. It's probably hard for people listening to this podcast to even imagine what I'm talking about because we're going through 2,000 years, basically, of being brainwashed in terms of texts. Everything's written down. There are things you can do, things you can't do. Whereas really, 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 Torah Heshavah p'er leaves an unbelievable amount of discretion to the God, I'll use a modern term. <clears throat> Similarly, it seems to me, uh, the, the Nebuchadnezzar says something quite remarkable. And he says, in the period before the Torah was given, the great people of the past, Adam, Chava, Noah, Mr. Shalach, and so forth, Avram, Yusuf, Yaakov, they say they kept the Torah, but the Torah wasn't around yet. So he says, now, don't be surprised at this. The Avos and those type of guys were Kabbalistic supermen. That is to say, they understood the Olimus and the way the world was, was created in a Arizal fashion. Because for an Arizal, they, they were like that. Once you're like that, then you realize that you're not bound by any particular din. You're supposed to go and follow the olamus and your Hanhagas, the way you conduct yourself, should be in such a way that it, 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 it raises the Kabbalah Shemayim or something like that, and increases the positive vibes that go into the world, and lays the foundation for for future good things from a religious point of view. Even if it involves going against something that the Torah itself will prohibit later when the Torah is given. Okay? And a classic example he gives is Yakima and two sisters. But there are others. And I don't want to take time, I'm going too far too too far as it is. But I'll just read you a relevant part. Zehoyu, um, the whole chapter is very interesting. We should you should read it. Um, but he says, this is the kind of are talking. Really, 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 you should do everything with Shema. And the Shema doesn't even mean, you know, to, um, to perfect yourself. But rather, you want, to do, you want to do something that will have positive vibes in the Olamas, which is a whole science by itself. And this is the shot that Avram and Sinyakov, Kim was a Torah right? That they kept the Torah earlier. but the Torah wasn't given, and it doesn't mean as many would think, that Avram was so firm that he said, even Inum Mitsubasaur or something like that, uh I'm gonna do it anyway. No. Because then, they would have felt themselves bound not to deviate from the laws of the Torah and the Kabbalistic consequences of keeping laws or not keeping laws of the Torah, uh, which they did do, they did violate those occasionally, um, had they felt themselves but they wouldn't have done it had they felt themselves bound by these. But they didn't. So I'll say it again. They could have seen that for them itself. Notice for me, Yaakov Avinu, with my unique circumstances, with my with my with my unique circumstances. For me, I can see I'll pick Kabbalah or something like that, that Tadashim of Chal I'm just giving an example, right? Or Tamar Shay Traith. Uh, even though I know that eventually the Torah is going to be given, and that particular route will be sealed off once there's an Isser on Chal Shabbos and But right now, before the Torah is given, in order for me to make the world, Misaken and even better, on this one occasion, or something like that. Or to be more exact, that's why uh, uh, Yaakov ended up marrying two sisters eventually, even though you're not supposed to, according to the Torah. But it's not simply the Torah hadn't been given yet, it's that the, the Torah hadn't been given yet, and he realized that this is the right thing to do in his particular Sherish Neshama. Now, obviously, a wicked person could, could misuse that, like Shabtai Tzvi, so on. but we're not talking about We're talking about Tzadikim over here. Okay? If a guy like Yaakov could see with his Kabbalistic supervision that according to Shorish Nishmazo, he knows in his unique situation and case, and the way his nishama was constructed different than someone else, that if he marries two sisters, Rachel Leah, it'll affect Tikunim Gadolim Bakokas Olamas Elyonim, it'll affect positive vibes in the Olomus, and it'll set the stage for Claudius royal, Hema Yivindushteim as basis royal, yoga kami gios, vavodus, la sigamushinosilo. So he moved heaven and earth. He moved. He made all kinds of shtick with Lavan to marry the two sisters, which is not usually the way you think about the story. Bezeh Gamkein Echem Hataymim is a very interesting passage, and this, Zotchaim B'lazer, is one of the reasons, Shalo That's exactly why the Torah was not given earlier than it was. That's why Abram and Yaakov were not given the Torah yet, because that would have precluded them from doing certain things which... In their unique situation, not you and me, for us it's us, right? Not you and me. Back then, in their situation, for people who knew, Ruknius wise, when and how to do it, not somebody else, Shimbah tennisland had determined given earlier, Lahay Yaakov Roshay Lisa Nishmasam. Even if they discerned that it's the right thing to do, Mitzat Nishmasam, but I, once, it's, once it's also, it's also. Same with me like I told you, I wrote down the Tertia Chevalpe. So if the Gemara says you can't do this, then I can't do it anymore, even though it was up to me, myself, and I. And I was a great Gone and Sadiq and Navi and whatever buck in the Torah. I might realize in this, and this situation you can do it. But once it's written down, you can't do it. If you're interested in what I just said, you look this up yourself in Nebuchadnezzar in uh, the first part in chapter 21, and it's quite remarkable because then you see the story of Yaakov and Rivka uh, cheating uh, Esau in a different calculus. They're applying, like I say, a Kabbalistic kind of calculus. It's a very firm way of reading the story, but at the end of the day, there's no essential difference between violating two, uh, marrying two sisters at the same time and lying and fooling your father if your Shur's and Hashanah tells you, it's you know, for this and this reason, for that and that reason is necessary, then even though ordinarily you wouldn't do it, because the Torah says, Midvar sheker but in this unique situation, things are different. Same way the Torah Shavapar once said, you can drive on Shabbos to this place, and you cannot. I, to two, two people, same Shabbos, but the Shur's and Hashanah would tell them, this one yes, and this one no. So it's a very interesting kind of way of of looking at the parasha, at least to me. Anyway, I've gone way too long anyway, but um, I want to thank once again the Radomsky's Nishama, uh, 50 Yard Station Avenue and I wish you all a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.com dot